Well, if you were here with us last Lord's Day, you'll know we studied this same text with respect to Paul's teaching on the gift of tongues. And if you happen to miss that sermon, I'd encourage you to go on our website sometime this week and listen to it because much of what we talked about last week is foundational to what we're going to learn today about the gift of prophecy. The Apostle Paul has introduced the subject of spiritual gifts back in chapter 12 of this, this epistle. He's emphasized the critical importance of love as the foundation for everything in the Christian life. Now in chapter 14, Paul is zooming in on two spiritual gifts that had developed into something of a problem in this ancient church. Corinthians, in their pursuit of unusual experiences, had elevated the gift of tongues above all other spiritual gifts. They were beginning to view it as the mark of spiritual maturity. Certain members of this church were using the gift of tongues not as a means to edify and build up the corporate body, but rather as a means to manifest their own spiritual pride and to assert their superiority over others. And so tongues were very frequently being spoken in a chaotic and disordered way with numerous people speaking at the same time and no interpretation of the tongues being offered. The church in Corinth was being divided over the gift of tongues and the non-Christians who had the misfortune of seeing this sorry spectacle had come to the conclusion that the Christ followers in Corinth had lost their minds. It's into this disordered, chaotic mess that Paul writes this chapter in 1 Corinthians, partly as a rebuke to the spiritual pride that had brought it about, partly as a pastoral corrective to the abuses that were going on. And though we might suppose that the Apostle Paul would resolve all of this chaos by forbidding the gift of tongues altogether, that is precisely what he refuses to do. Instead of throwing a wet blanket on these gifts, Paul instead instructs the believers about why God has given them to the church and how these gifts are to be manifested and governed to the glory of God and for the common good of His people. As we emphasized last time, there is a common thread of teaching that runs through this entire chapter as the Apostle Paul contrasts the gift of tongues with the gift of prophecy. And Paul's main point in making that contrast is to show us that intelligible speech is of supreme importance in the church for both believers and for non-believers. When God's people gather together for corporate worship on the Lord's Day and on other occasions, it is critical that everyone present in the assembly can understand what is being said. And so we discover in this chapter Paul's preference for prophecy over uninterpreted tongues. Well, that's a brief summary of what we covered last week. My goal in the remainder of our time together this morning is not to teach any more on the gift of tongues, but to turn to this second spiritual gift called prophecy a gift that was very much valued by the Apostle Paul because of its capacity to build up the church and to edify believers. As we turn to look at the gift of prophecy this morning, we're going to try and define this gift in a biblical way, and then we're going to see how this gift is to be practically used and practically governed within the church of Jesus Christ. And so here we go. First issue we need to tackle this morning is defining the gift. What is the gift of prophecy? And once again this week, we might hope for a simple answer to that question, but as we discovered last time with the gift of tongues, the meaning and the function of New Testament prophecy has proven to be a battleground of controversy. This is one of those subjects where believers who equally affirm the authority and the inerrancy and the sufficiency of the Bible disagree with one another. It's likely one of those areas of doctrine where we will continue to disagree until the Lord returns and the dim mirror of imperfect knowledge is taken away. Now this morning I'm going to begin with two common views about prophecy that are held by non-charismatics. And as we sketch out these two views, these evangelical views, I'm going to explain why I think that both of them are biblically and theologically inadequate. And so we're going to begin this morning by deconstructing and critiquing two very common positions about prophecy. And then we're going to look at a third position I'm convinced makes the best sense out of Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians alongside all the other biblical material. So that's where we're heading this morning. First position on prophecy that's been very popular in non-charismatic circles is the view that prophecy is the same thing as preaching. 
This interpretation has a long history within evangelical and reform circles. Not surprisingly, it's a position that many of my own heroes, some of them who are long dead and some of them who are still alive, would embrace wholeheartedly. One of the early English Puritans by the name of William Perkins wrote an instructional book on preaching that became the standard textbook in seminaries for many years. He called his book The Art of Prophesying. You see, for William Perkins, as for many others, to prophesy in the church simply means to preach in the church. And although I don't agree with that point of view for reasons that will soon become clear, I don't think it's completely off the mark. You know, very often when people think about that word prophecy, they think in terms of future predictions, and certainly that is one aspect of biblical prophecy. In the Old Testament, we find very specific predictions about future events. The same thing is true in the New Testament. In Acts 11, for example, a prophet named Agabus predicts a famine that was soon to come upon the church, and a little later on, the same prophet predicts the arrest and the imprisonment of the Apostle Paul. But what is often overlooked about biblical prophecy is that the foretelling of the future is not nearly as prominent as the foretelling of God's revealed word. You can prove that for yourself this afternoon and this week. Open up your Bible and read the prophetic books of the Old Testament. In a very real sense, the Old Testament prophets are preachers of the word. They are men that God had raised up to remind the people of Israel of the covenant promises that God had made with them at Mount Sinai. That they had made with God. One of my Old Testament prophets at Trinity used to call them covenant prosecutors. They were preachers of the law whose job it was to remind the Israelites of the consequence of disobedience to call them back to repentance and faithful living. And when we look at the prophetic office in that light, it's clear there is an overlap between the function of prophecy and the function of preaching. We're not dealing here with two completely different categories of speech. The prophets of old, like modern day preachers and pastors, had a responsibility to bring the Word of God to bear upon the people of God. And in that sense, I fulfill a prophetic role every time I step into this pulpit and preach the Word of God with authority and conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit. But the question remains, can prophecy be reduced to preaching? And in my view, it cannot. There are a number of different reasons for this. I want to highlight the most important ones for your consideration. For starters, prophecy differs from preaching in that it sometimes does involve predictions about the future that could never be known by reading the Bible. Prophet Agabus, for example, could have searched the Old Testament Scriptures from morning to night and he would never have found a single verse in the Bible that would have told him that a famine was on the way. Prophet Isaiah could have searched the Torah backwards and forwards and nothing written there would indicate that Cyrus the Persian would help to bring the exile to an end. And so you see, friends, although prophecy and preaching share a similar function in bringing the Word of God to bear upon the people of God, it's reductionistic to say that the preacher is a mere prophet and that the prophet is a mere preacher. Second piece of biblical evidence that calls this position into question is the fact that the office of a prophet is explicitly distinguished from the office of the pastor teacher in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, we read these words from the Apostle Paul. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers to help or to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, without denying that there's a prophetic function in preaching, it is a categorical error to confuse the office of a prophet with the office of a pastor-teacher. Thirdly, you will notice here in 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul defines prophecy in terms of revelation. And this becomes very important in understanding the gift. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. I'm going to have more to say about New Testament prophecy as it relates to Old Testament prophecy, but one thing that we very clearly learn from Paul is that the gift of prophecy is dealing in the realm of revelation and not merely in the realm of illumination. 
Now, to say that another way, prophecy involves receiving direct messages from God, whereas preaching involves explaining messages that have been previously received from God. When I step into this pulpit to preach every Lord's Day, I'm not here to give you a new revelation from the Lord. I'm here to explain to you and to apply to your lives revelation that's already been given to us in the inspired and inerrant Word of God. Very important difference between prophecy and preaching. It's a difference between revelation and illumination. And then finally, it's very difficult to say that prophecy is the same thing of preaching if we wish to maintain that women are not to preach and teach the Word of God when men are present. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul gives us a clear word of prohibition against women teaching and exercising authority over men, or as he puts it in that verse, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, the reason for that rather politically incorrect prohibition is given in the very next verse. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. It's not a cultural principle. It's a timeless principle that is rooted in the creation narrative. Now, I'm not going to explain those verses any further other than to say it is my view, it is the view of our church and the view of our denomination, it is unbiblical for women to teach and exercise authority over men. Because when women authoritatively preach the word to men in the church, they are overturning the biblical order that God has ordained in creation. Now, if we take that prohibition seriously, as I think most of us do here at Rosedale, we've got to reconcile it with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, where Paul writes, Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. We dealt with that whole issue of head coverings back in the fall. What I want you to notice here isn't anything about head coverings, Rather, that the apostle assumes that women are praying and prophesying within the context of corporate worship. But what he says there, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And so if you want to take the position that preaching and prophesying are the same thing, a contradiction is introduced into Paul's teaching. For in 1 Corinthians 11, he allows the women to prophesy with their heads covered. In 1 Timothy 2, he forbids them from teaching and preaching. It's a very difficult problem for those who think prophecy and preaching are the same thing. But if these are two different things, as I believe they are, the contradiction vanishes into smoke. Indeed, as I'm going to argue in just a few moments, I'm convinced that in a New Testament context, the gift of preaching is even more authoritative than the gift of prophecy. That's why Paul allows only men to preach in the church, while at the same time, he allows both men and women to prophesy in the church. Although I respect those who want to equate prophecy and preaching, I agree that there is some overlap between these two things. I'm convinced this view doesn't hold water. It simply does not do justice to the relevant biblical material. And so we move on now to the second position, commonly promoted by non-charismatics and sometimes held in combination with the view that I've just explained. The second position maintains the gift of prophecy in the Old Testament is exactly the same as the gift of prophecy in the New Testament and that this gift disappeared once the Bible was completely written. Now advocates of this view usually believe prophecy and tongues died out at roughly the same time and that they're no longer available for the church today. I should add, this position that equates Old Testament prophecy with New Testament prophecy has provided the basis for some very dangerous false teaching among those who do not believe that the gifts have ceased. And so, for example, back in the 19th century, a man named Joseph Smith, who grew up in a Protestant church, came to believe that God gave him prophetic revelations that were on par with the Bible. And that was the beginning of the Mormon cult, a false, deluded prophet. And as you know, Mormons today not only claim to believe in the Bible, but also in extra books and extra prophecies that were given to them by Joseph Smith and by Brigham Young and by many others. And even today they believe that their church is led by an inspired prophet. 
To a lesser degree, the same kind of thing happened within the Seventh-day Adventist movement with the so-called prophetess Ellen White. If you spend any amount of time around Seventh-day Adventists, you'll know they often give the writings of this woman a position of authority and influence that should never be given to anyone. Friends, it's very important. If you believe this position, if you're convinced that Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy are the, th- are the same thing, you must believe that the gifts have ceased to function. You have no choice but to believe that. Because otherwise, this position about prophecy, it's guaranteed to produce innumerable heresies, false religions, and false prophets who want to add new material to the finished work of the Word of God and to claim that their so-called prophecies are of equal authority to the Word of God. I have absolutely no hesitation saying to you this morning, Muhammad was a false prophet, Joseph Smith was a false prophet, David Koresh was a false prophet, Ellen White was a false prophet, along with anyone else who thinks they are the mouthpiece of God who can speak and write infallibly. Not to be controversial this morning or unkind, but this exact same problem exists within the Roman Catholic Church with their theology of the Pope. I don't think that the Pope is wrong in everything he says, but certainly the Pope is wrong to think that he can speak infallibly with the same authority as Peter and Paul and the other apostles. And so while I disagree with the view that equates Old Testament prophecy with New Testament prophecy, I am deeply relieved that the majority of Protestants who affirm this position also believe that the gifts have ended a long time ago. Now, as you know, I think that view is wrong too but it's better than the alternative. Because unlike some of the false prophets I've just mentioned, these men and women have a deep desire to safeguard the total sufficiency and the absolute authority of God's written word, just as I do. Now, unfortunately, I don't think that view is correct. I'm going to give you a few reasons why. In the Old Testament era, The gift of prophecy was a rare gift. It was inaccessible for the vast majority of God's people. Only a select minority of men were prophets in the Old Testament, but one of these men named Joel spoke about a coming day when the gift of prophecy would not be restricted to a few select people such as Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah. Joel chapter 2, verse 28, we read, And it shall come to pass afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. When he spoke those inspired words, the prophet Joel was looking forward in time to the new covenant era, a time that would begin on the day of Pentecost and a time that would extend until the return of Jesus Christ. Fast forward to Acts chapter 2. The apostle Peter tells us we are now living in this new covenant era spoken by Joel and that one of the distinguishing marks of the new covenant age is the gift of prophecy that has been poured out on all believers. By the way, when Joel and Peter use the word all, I don't think that they're saying that all Christians without exception should prophesy, but that all Christians without distinction will prophesy. In other words, this spiritual gift will be given to all kinds and all classes of Christian people. It's a gift for the old and for the young. It's a gift for the men and for the women. It's a gift for the servants and for the masters. The very minimum, Joel's prophecy points towards a shift in the administration of the gift when we move out of the Old Testament era and into the New. Because no longer is it a gift for a select few, it's a gift for all kinds of people. This seems to be the thought behind Paul's words in verse 1 of our text when he says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Building on the foundation of Joel's prophecy, its fulfillment at Pentecost, Paul encourages all of the believers in Corinth to desire this gift, perhaps even to pray that the Lord would give it to them. By the way, although it's certainly true that the Spirit is sovereign in the distribution of gifts, that doesn't mean for one second that it's wrong for a Christian to ask for the gifts, provided that he or she asks with the right motive. I believe God is sovereign in choosing all those who will ultimately be saved, but that doesn't mean that I shouldn't pray to God and ask Him to save the non-believers that He's put in my life. 
The same thing is true when it comes to spiritual gifts. It is not a denial of the Spirit's sovereignty to pray and to ask Him for the gift of prophecy. And if you take this chapter at face value, it certainly seems the Apostle Paul wanted the Corinthians to actively desire this gift so that they could use it for the common good, for the purposes that he mentions there in verse 3, number one, for upbuilding, number two, for encouragement, number three, for consolation. Hundreds of years earlier, Joel predicted the day when prophecy would be democratized. Now the Apostle Paul is building on that foundation. He is encouraging the Corinthians to desire the gift, to pursue love as they exercise it. But this brings us up against a difficulty. Because we know that in the Old Covenant era of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the prophets were responsible for writing the Scriptures. We know that the words and the revelations the prophets received from the Lord were both inerrant and authoritative for the people of God. And so are we to suppose that the same thing is true when we come into the New Testament era and the prophetic gift is poured out on all Christians without distinction? Are we to suppose from verse 1 of our text that Paul wanted all of the Corinthians to become authoritative, inerrant, Scripture-speaking, Scripture-writing prophets like Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah when he told them to desire the gift? Well, if you take the position that the prophecy in the Old Testament is the same as prophecy in the New Testament, I don't know how you could get around it. The answer would have to be yes. And if that's truly the case, it would seem to imply a great deal of God's authoritative, inerrant revelation has been lost. Because between the day of Pentecost and the end of the first century, there must have been hundreds of prophets in the Christian churches. There must have been thousands of prophecies delivered during that period. And so then we ask the question, why are there only 27 authoritative inspired books in the New Testament? Why is it that these authoritative books were not written by the Corinthian prophets, but by the apostles? Why is it that although the gift of prophecy was poured out on both men and women, we don't find a single book in the New Testament that was written by a woman? Now friends, those are just observations, but they ought to give us pause for a moment before we insist that nothing is changed from the Old Testament to the New. certainly seems that something has changed. Because in the Old Testament, the prophets were the authors of Scripture. Who are the authors of Scripture in the New Testament? Not the Corinthian prophets, but the apostles. And so, could it be, as we move across the dividing line from the Old Covenant into the New, that the office of the Old Testament prophet has been replaced by the office of the New Testament apostle? And if that is the case, could it be The gift of prophecy described here in 1 Corinthians is something less authoritative than we find in the Old Testament and certainly less authoritative than we find spoken by the apostles. I believe it is. Perhaps the most conclusive piece of evidence for this point of view comes in verses 36 to 38 of our text. Let me read that again. Paul says, Was it from you that the Word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. If the prophets in the ancient Corinthian church were working on the same level of authority as an Isaiah or a Jeremiah or Ezekiel, do you think the Apostle Paul would speak to them like this? Here in these verses, the Apostle Paul speaks to these prophets in a way that clearly places them underneath his own apostolic authority. If anyone in Corinth wants to claim the prophetic gift and to disregard the commands and instructions of Paul or the apostles, they are to sit down and shut their mouths. They are not to be given an opportunity to speak in the church. And so it seems evident here, prophets are under the authority of apostles. And if we add to that the observation that Paul allows women to prophesy but not to preach, we may well take the argument one step further and conclude that New Testament prophecy is not even as authoritative as preaching. 
No, friends, the first Corinthians was the only book in the New Testament that taught about prophecy. I think a very strong case could be made that the gift is something less in the New Covenant than it was in the Old Covenant. But this isn't the only, the only evidence that we have in the Bible. For when we look in the book of Acts, we meet a man named Agabus who rightly prophesied that Paul would be arrested in Jerusalem, but seems to have made some mistakes in the fine details. Over in Acts 21, we read these words about this New Testament prophet. You can look this up later this afternoon. It says, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the sake of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. A few years ago when we were working through the book of Acts on Sunday morning, I preached on this text and I suggested then as I'm going to suggest again right now that Agabus, although he was a true prophet of God, was not totally accurate in all the fine details of his prophecy. For starters, Agabus predicts that Paul would be bound by the Jews, but later on in verse 33 we discover it was not the Jews but the Romans who arrested and bound Paul. Agabus also predicts that Jews would deliver Paul to the Romans. When we read the narrative carefully down the page, we discover that the Jews were trying to murder Paul and that the Romans rescued him from the Jews. Now, you don't take my word for this. Verify this for yourself later this afternoon. But it certainly appears as though Agabus was correct in the main thrust of the prophecy, but that he was wrong when it came to some of the details. Now, if we were living in the Old Testament era, what do you suppose would have happened to Agabus? Well, I'll tell you what would have happened. He would have been taken outside the camp and stoned to death because his prophecy was not 100% correct. But here in the book of Acts, there is no suggestion that Agabus was reprimanded. There's no hint that he was placed under church discipline. There is no suggestion that he was excommunicated from the church. And so come to your own conclusions, brothers and sisters, but it certainly seems to me we are dealing with a gift that is not operating on the same level of authority as the Old Testament. Speaking about the gift of prophecy, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every, every form of evil. And then here, 1 Corinthians 14.29, Paul says, Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what is being said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged and the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. The Old Testament era, the word of a prophet was to be received as the very word of God once the the legitimacy of that prophet had been established. And the same thing is true of an apostle. But now in the New Testament era, every prophetic message needs to be tested and sifted and weighed. And so friends, once again, while I respect those who want to contend there is no difference between prophecy in the Old Testament and the New Testament, I think there is a substantial amount of biblical evidence that weighs against that theory and makes it very difficult to embrace. And so we come then to the third and final view of prophecy, which I would commend to you this morning, the view that New Testament prophecy is of lesser quality and lesser authority than Old Testament prophecy. And that's not because God's revelation is of lesser quality. It's because we have to interpret that revelation and our interpretation of it is fallible and imperfect. We've already mentioned the New Testament suggests the office of the prophet was replaced by the office of the apostle. Paul mentions here in our text, prophets are under his own apostolic authority. Presumably, they're also under the authority of the elders in the church since Paul allows the women to prophesy but not to preach. But you know, this idea of fallible prophets and fallible prophecy in the New Testament tends to make some of us feel very uneasy. 
I think we feel that way because of the very high standard for prophecy in the Old Testament, as well as the very real potential for abuse of this kind of gift within the church. And maybe some of you have witnessed those abuses firsthand. But really, when you think about this, the concept of a fallible prophet shouldn't cause us any more discomfort than the concept of a fallible preacher. And note carefully, by the word fallible, I don't mean false. Agabus was a fallible prophet who was wrong in some of the details, but he certainly wasn't a false prophet. By the same token, I think all of you would recognize the difference between a fallible preacher and a false preacher because you're gracious enough to let me come back every week and preach. As a pastor, it is my calling and my duty to preach the Word of God in such a way that the meaning of the text, the original intent of the author, is brought to bear on the hearts and lives of God's people today. And because of that fact, I spend many hours every week in study and preparation. I pour over the biblical text. I read many books and articles and commentaries. I pray and I ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text so I can understand it rightly and preach it accurately. But you know something? The fact that I have a seminary degree and an ordination certificate does not mean I'm infallible. It does not mean that you should uncritically accept everything that comes out of my mouth. As I've told you already a couple times today, and I say quite often from this pulpit, never take my word for it. Search the Scriptures and see whether these things are so. Weigh what I say from the pulpit. Test what I say from the pulpit against the touchstone of God's Word. Now I promise you, church, I'm not going to intentionally lead you astray, but don't conclude from my sincerity and good intentions that I don't miss the mark every now and then. If you're the kind of Christian that agrees with every little thing that comes out of your pastor's mouth, it probably says more about you than it does about me. It's probably an indication that you are not thinking critically. You are not testing all things against the authority and touchstone of the Word. But just stop and think about this for a minute. If I'm not infallible and you let me stand up on Sunday to talk to you for 40 minutes, why would you conclude? that a fallible prophet like Agabus would be of no value for Christ's church. It is simply not logical, friends. And if you believe as I do that New Testament prophecy is even less authoritative than preaching, an all-or-nothing attitude that seeks to shut down every manifestation of the prophetic gift because there may be some errors or abuses doesn't make sense. If we're going to do away with fallible prophecies, we may as well do away with fallible sermons while we're at it. Now friends, I'm speaking to you tongue-in-cheek here, but I think you get the point. And I hope that you let me come back next week and preach again. Certainly, the Apostle Paul was aware that not everyone who got up to speak in tongues was doing so legitimately or for the right reasons, but yet he does not forbid the use of the gift. In fact, he commands us in verse 39 not to forbid it. Likewise, I don't think Paul was naive enough to think that every Tom, Dick, and Harry in Corinth who stood up to deliver a prophecy was speaking with 100% precision. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense for him to instruct the believers in the church to weigh and to test what is being said. The Apostle Paul was well aware that prophecy, like preaching, is a gift of mixed quality. It's a gift that needs to be tested and evaluated, weighed and discerned, but it is not a gift that's to be despised. You know something, if we live by an ethic that prohibits everything that could possibly lead us into some form of error or abuse, we're going to be very restricted individuals indeed. I mean, the best way to avoid getting in a car accident is never to step in a car. The best way to prevent forest fire burning down your tent when you go camping is never to light a campfire. Perhaps one good way to make sure you keep your New Year's resolution not to overeat is to throw out all the spoons and the forks from your drawers. And so, friends, while I completely understand the fears, the concerns some people have about tongues and prophecy, it is a bad argument to prohibit something without biblical warrant just because it might go wrong, just because it might get out of control. It's not a good argument, friends. And that's probably why Paul doesn't prohibit the use of tongues and prophecy in Corinth, even though both of these things were being grossly abused. 
He doesn't throw a bucket of water on the fire. Instead, he gives the Corinthians guidelines so they can properly govern and regulate the gifts. And he doesn't simply prohibit them from being used. Well, slowly but steadily, we've been moving towards a definition of prophecy. And I'm now ready to give you one. It's a definition that comes from Wayne Grudem, who used to teach at the seminary where I studied. In his excellent textbook on systematic theology, Dr. Grudem defines prophecy as the telling of something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Very simple, very helpful, I think very biblical definition. The only thing I would add to it are the three purposes Paul provides in verse 3 of our text, the purpose of encouragement, of building up, and of consolation. And so bringing all three, all of these pieces together, we might define prophecy as telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind that will edify, that will encourage, or that will console. And I'd like to suggest to you this morning, this is not the kind of thing that is limit, limited to the Pentecostal and charismatic church. This is something that many of us in this very room have probably experienced in our lives. Perhaps an unexpected thought that suddenly pops into your mind about another person in the church. Perhaps a sudden urge to pray for a very specific person that you haven't seen or thought of in months or in years. Perhaps a financial or material need that comes into your mind even though though nobody in the church ever mentioned it to you. In charismatic circles, these kind of spontaneous thoughts are often spoken out loud and are called prophecies. But in our non-charismatic circles, we tend to have these same experiences, but to call them what? I don't know, impressions. (laughs) They're impressions. And so, friends, part of the battle over this gift of prophecy may, in fact, not be a battle over experience. It may just be a battle over terminology. What one side in the debate is calling prophecy, the other side is calling impressions. Charles Spurgeon. One of my Baptist heroes who, by all accounts, did not believe in the ongoing validity of tongues and prophecy seems to have manifested this various gift, this very gift at various points in his ministry. Writing in his autobiography, Spurgeon says the following, and I'm going to quote to you in his own words. This is Spurgeon writing, not John interpreting Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, while preaching in the hall on one occasion, I deliberately pointed to a man in the midst of the crowd and I said, there's a man sitting there who is a shoemaker. He keeps his shop open on Sundays. It was open last Sabbath. He took nine pence. There was four pence profit out of it. His soul is sold to Satan for a four pence. Okay, Spurgeon was a Sabbatarian. A city missionary, when going on his rounds, met with this man and seeing that he was reading one of my sermons, he asked the question, do you know Mr. Spurgeon? Well, yes, replied the man, I have every reason to know him. I have been to hear him. And under his preaching, by God's grace, I've become a new creature in Jesus Christ. Can I tell you how it happened? I went to the music hall. I took my seat in the middle of the place. Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me. And in his sermon, he pointed at me and told the whole congregation that I was a shoemaker. He told them I kept my shop open on Sundays. And I did, sir. Not that I should have minded that, but he also said I took nine pence the Sunday before and that there was a four pence profit in it. I did take nine pence that day. Four pence was the profit. How should he know that? I cannot tell. Then it struck me it was God who had spoken to my soul through him, so I shut up my shop the next Sunday. At first I was afraid to go hear him lest he should tell the people more about me. But afterwards I went and the Lord met with me and he saved my soul. Spurgeon goes on to write, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at someone in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person, any idea that what I said was right, except I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And so striking has been my descriptions that the persons have gone away and said to their friends, come and see a man that told me all things I ever did. Beyond a doubt, he must have been sent by God to my soul or else he could not have described me so exactly. Not only so, 
But I have known many instances in which the thoughts of men have been revealed from the pulpit. I have sometimes seen persons nudge their neighbors with their elbows because they got a smart hit. And they've been heard to say when they were going out the door, the preacher told us just what we said to one another when we came in the door. Friends, I honestly don't know how Mr. Spurgeon would explain that experience. I don't know how Mr. Spurgeon would reconcile those experiences with the doctrinal position he took towards the gift. Seems pretty clear to me what he's describing. Here we have a non-charismatic Baptist minister who is speaking prophetically in the middle of his sermon precisely what the Apostle Paul describes for us in the text. I mean, just look at what Paul says in verse 24 and 25. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever, an outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. Then look at verse 25. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's the gift of prophecy. Unlike the gift of tongues that would only serve to send the non-believer out the door from whence he came with the same unbelief, the gift of prophecy is a means that God sometimes uses to get a person's attention and to disclose the secrets of his heart. And so, brothers and sisters, let us be very hesitant to close close the door on this gift. Let us be very reserved to dogmatically say it no longer exists in the church or to claim it is no longer needed or important now that we have the completed Bible in our hands. Nor do I think there's any reason to fear the exercise of the prophetic gift if we define it this way. We shouldn't fear that it will undermine our confidence in the total sufficiency of Scripture. Because once we come to recognize that New Testament prophecy functions at a lower level of authority than it did in the Old Testament, we can freely embrace expressions of this gift. We can regulate it according to the instruction Paul has given us in the chapter. And as to those practical instructions that I now want to turn as we conclude our time in the Word. The problem in Corinth wasn't that the Christians were prophesying and speaking in tongues. The problem is that they were doing it without love. The problem is that they were doing it with no regard to order and decency in the church. And so this gift that God had intended for the upbuilding, encouragement, consolation of His people was accomplishing the exact opposite. It was tearing the church apart. It was creating divisions and disunity. Paul's teaching here in the concluding verses of the chapter gives us insight into the kinds of things that were going wrong in Corinth along with the proposed solution. The first abuse that Paul seeks to rectify is the tendency for everyone to speak at the same time, perhaps for so many people to speak prophetically, that it was crowding out time for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And so Paul's solution to this is very simple. Those having the prophetic gift should speak in turn. Only one person should speak at a time, up to a maximum of three at any given meeting. Simple. Second abuse that Paul was seeking to correct in these verses was a lack of spiritual discernment in the church. It seems that in Corinth, every prophetic utterance was being accepted at face value without an effort to weigh what was being said and to separate the good from the bad. And as we've seen, the Bible is very clear in 1 Thessalonians 5 that whenever the gift of prophecy is being manifested, there must be a weighing and a testing of what is being said. And since the purpose of prophecy is to edify, encourage, and console, these messages must be evaluated according to those criteria. If it's not edifying, encouraging, if it's not delivered in a spirit of love, it's not from the Lord. Even more importantly than that, since Paul makes it clear that the prophets were subject to his apostolic authority, we must always test the word of prophecy against the touchstone of the inspired, inerrant apostolic Scripture. And if the message contains false doctrine, if it goes against something that's clearly written in the Word, we can be absolutely sure it is not a prophecy from the Lord. The Word of God and the Spirit of God need to be held together. In Romans 12, the Apostle writes, those who prophesy in the church should do so according to the measure or according to the analogy of faith. And what that means is that no prophecy should ever contradict the body of teaching that is contained in the Word of God. 
And then thirdly, if a prophecy contains a prediction that does not come to pass, we can be certain it's not for God, although it is true that in the moment it may be difficult to make a, a, a judgment. But certainly, if someone claims to have the prophetic gift, but has a track record of saying things that are either false, unedifying, or consistently off the mark, the leadership of the church should step into that situation and perhaps suggest to the person that they do not have the prophetic gift. And of course, if any person in the church is claiming prophecy as an excuse to undermine church leadership or to promote false doctrine, they must be identified as a false prophet. They must be dealt with accordingly. We would deal with a corrupt prophet in the church the same way we deal with a corrupt preacher in the church. Put them under discipline. Excommunicate them. While we're on this subject of discipline or of discernment, let me give you a couple pieces of wisdom that I picked up from Dr. Grudem. Because New Testament prophecy is not on the same level as authority as Old Testament prophecy, and because it is, is possible for a Christian to miss the mark in the exercise of this gift, it is never a good idea for a Christian to preface a prophetic message with the words, Thus saith the Lord. Very, very common to hear Christians talking like this, especially in charismatic circles. You know, God told me to say this to you. God told me to do this. God said this to me last night. It's not a good idea. If you think that the Lord has given you a word of knowledge or a word of prophecy, it would be far better for you to say, I have the sense that the Lord is saying this. I have the sense that God told me to do this or to do that. Because when you dogmatically declare, God told me to do such and such, God said such and such to me, you're not leaving any room for testing, weighing, and discerning that Paul says must take place. And so those who exercise prophetic gifts should do so humbly in a way that will allow their words to be qualified or even rejected if necessary. That's why Paul says in the, here in the text, the spirit of prophets is subject to prophets. There's accountability in the use of this gift. There's checks and balances. There's a willingness to be evaluated. And so be careful with your words. Never give the impression you are speaking with the same authority as inspired Scripture because you are most certainly not. Now, in the context of our ministry here at Rosedale, we generally don't structure our services in a way that allows for the kind of flexibility that Paul describes in verse 26, where each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Perhaps the Plymouth Brethren are better than this in the Baptists. But to me, it sounds like an informal small group meeting, and in the original context of the letter, it is probably a description of a house church meeting and not of the larger gathering when the individual house churches would get together as a corporate body. Churches in the first century were structured differently than churches are structured today. But if we're gathered together on a Sunday morning like we are today, and you sense that the Lord has given you a short word of encouragement or consolation that you would like to share with the congregation, I would very much prefer that you didn't shout it out. If that ever happens, here's what you should do. Come to me in my pew. Share privately with me what the Lord has laid on your heart. And if I believe that the message meets the criteria we talked about a few moments ago, I will let you know if and when you'll be able to share it. But generally speaking, I think the gift of prophecy is better used in an informal small group setting, or at least that's the sense that I get from Paul's description here. I would also encourage you, brothers and sisters, be very cautious about any attempts to write down and circulate prophetic messages that claim to be authoritative words from the Lord. A good example of this kind of thing that I would warn you about is a very popular Christian book called Jesus Calling. I'm sure that many of you have heard of that book. Over the past two or three years, evangelicals have gone totally crazy about this book, and especially Christian women who are now using it for devotional material and for small group meetings. Now the main concern that I have with this book and that I would pass along to you this morning is the fact that the author of the book records messages that are allegedly from the Lord Jesus himself and that these messages have been written down in the first person voice so that Jesus himself is doing the talking. Now friends, I don't know anything about the lady who wrote this book. I don't want to make any judgments about her intentions on writing it or having it published. 
but to put words in the mouth of the Lord Jesus as though he is speaking to readers in the first person is a very foolish and dangerous thing to do. It is foolish because it gives the impression the messages she's received in her private prayer life are infallible. It is dangerous because it suggests to the reader that the reader needs the words of Christ in her book alongside the words of Christ in the Bible. In other words, it undermines confidence in the sufficiency of the Word of God. Now, I know that the author makes qualifications in the book, but also the fact that the words of Christ are put in the first person is a problem. And so, ladies, if you've gotten caught up in the Jesus calling craze, I would very much caution you against it. One final issue to address here is Paul's instruction, verse 34, that women should keep silent in the churches. It would have been nice if I ran out of time. I almost have, actually. Although some people take this verse to mean that women are never to open their mouths or ever to say a peep in the church, that cannot possibly be the right interpretation of this text, since Paul has already told us back in chapter 11 of the same epistle that women can pray and prophesy in church just as long as their heads are covered. And so unless we are willing to make Paul contradict Paul within the span of four chapters, we cannot possibly make this an infallible and an absolute prohibition for the ladies. Sorry, I didn't mean infallible. I meant absolute. It is infallible word. We should understand these words in the context in which we find them, which is, of course, Paul's authoritative instruction on the sifting and the weighing of prophecy. Although we know from chapter 11, Paul did allow women to pray and prophesy in church, we now discover he did not allow them to participate in the verbal discerning process since that would put them in a position of authority over the men. Very likely, in some situations, it would put them in the position of contradicting or challenging some of the things that their husbands said or other men in the church. And in the context of ancient Rome, this would have been seen as offensive. And so the wives of Corinth are encouraged to remain silent while the prophecies are being tested and weighed in the church, and then if they have any questions about them, they are to speak to their husbands later at home. And of course, the underlying principle here is the exact same principle as in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. But that does not mean that women can never speak or pray out loud in the church. It's a lot more that we could say on these two gifts of tongues and prophecy, but we have no more time to do it. I want to leave you with a quote this morning from Dr. Wayne Grudem, which I think is very helpful and I believe strikes the right balance. And here it is. If the gift of prophecy begins to be used in a church, the church should place a far more emphasis on the vastly superior value of Scripture as the source to which Christians can always go to hear the voice of the living God. Prophecy is a valuable gift, as are many other gifts, but it is in Scripture that God and only God speaks to us in His very words even today and throughout our lives. Rather than hoping at every worship service that the highlight would be some word of prophecy, those who use the gift of prophecy need to be reminded we should find our focus, the focus of our joy, our expectation, and our delight in God Himself as He speaks to us through the Bible. There we have a treasure of infinite worth, the actual words of our Creator speaking to us in language we can understand. And rather than seeking frequent guidance through prophecy, we should emphasize it is in Scripture that we are to find guidance for our lives. Wise words indeed.